Hello and welcome to the Creighton Crowbar podcast. It's episode 323 and it is Thursday the 14th of May as we're recording this and tonight I am joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And special guest Soren Johnson. Hello. How's it going? We're good. Yeah, well, I'm good. <laughs> so Soren is uh, the developer of um, many uh, storied um, uh, strategy games, um, Civilization 3, Civilization 4, um, founded Mohawk Games um, a few years ago, um, since has made Offworld, Offworld Trading Company, um, and has now uh, just released uh, into early access um, a new one called Old World. Um, so we'll get into talking about that shortly. Um, but uh, Soren, thanks for joining us. Um, you seem to have come a long way since uh, Knockout Kings 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew from there this is where it would end up? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I see you stuck into my, my early, early resume. <laughs> I mean, I'm a journalist and, and I found this site called Wikipedia. And oh, yes. I don't know, it was, <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> it's it very difficult, yeah. I actually already knew that. So I will just, I want that to be clear. <laughs> 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 before we um before we dig into um your you know old world we really want to talk to you about that um i wanted to um just uh um surface some new gaming news what done come out uh yesterday um very interested to see the the first video of um unreal engine, unreal engine 5 running on a ps5 uh there's a whole lot of polygons going on over there <laughs> And they specifically talked about the number of triangles. Um, oh, triangles, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, when people talk about polygons, are they always talking about triangles? or Because uh, I think if you do a non-triangle polygon, ultimately a 3D engine is breaking it down to triangles at some point, right? Yeah, it's, it's always and, triangles. That's like the one thing I right. remember from graphics class. <laughs> <laughs> so, Did any of this technical uh, wizardry excite you, Zoran? Um, I mean, it looked really nice. I can tell the... Uh, they, uh, you know, are aiming straight at uh, at the you know Tomb Raider development team, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it looks cool. I I, um, I really wouldn't know what to do with all those uh, triangles. Um, that's that sounds like a lot when they talk about billions. Um, you know, I mean, we're we're a pretty small team, so you know, I don't uh, yeah, generally speaking, I don't think about that too much, especially because. Um, for our for you know for the games we work on, we usually are pretty zoomed out. So it often comes down to legibility. Like at some point, it's just you hit diminishing returns if you try to make things look too detailed. Um, yeah. And uh, like for gaming in general, what I often wonder, like there's the, um, I mean, it, it looked really nice, right? Like there isn't, you know, the, the the character looked great. You know, it wasn't. I think we're kind of past the the uh, you know uncanny valley issue of actually like what a human looks like on screen. Now it's more of a different type of uncanny valley issue of like, you know, everything looks like the, the gameplay systems are going to have a hard time trying to compete with how realistic the world looks. Right. Yeah. Um, because often games are still like a bunch of very simple integers and booleans. Right. And uh, that can, that can get awkward. You know, if it's, if it's like a, every, anything goes physics game, like sounds great, but you know, it, yeah, it can lead to some issues. Yeah, that that struck me as well as I 
I wasn't excited by it. It looked great, um, but I didn't. Uh, nothing in my brain was like, "Oh, what's the next generation games going to be like with this technology?" It was like, "Well, it's going to be the same games, but like even more fidelity." But fidelity was never the problem. That's not something that ever jerks me out of um, a game that I'm playing. I'm not playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey and thinking like, "Oh, I, I would be so much more immersed if this." thing was slightly higher polygon or if there was no pop-in or whatever <laughs> i just forget about that stuff within like 10 minutes and yep. so this stuff this when i first play a game that looks like that i'll be impressed for 10 minutes and then i'll forget about it and the actual mark of how immersed i get long term is going to be based on you know gameplay systems and things that are frustrating me about how it controls and stuff like that i guess the the thing that they seem to be trying to get across was the idea that um artists are going to have less of a load on them you know because they are having to make very high poly. I mean, they, you know, when you when you're modeling something, you're creating in ZBrush or whatever a very high polygon, um, very highly detailed model. Which then, um, I you know, did, I have no personal experience with this, but you, I understand that a lot of artists then have to spend a long time um, optimizing, crunching down for actual use in a game and and the engine, and a lot of the detail there was is about communicating that that's that the engine just does it all for you. And if there were a few artist friends who are sort of quietly enthusiastic about that i guess we'll it's you know we'll we'll see whether that's actually plays true once it's in in artists hands but that that seems a pretty cool thing that um that it eases a bit of um workflow issues for artists yeah um the, another the other interesting thing about it was that the terms of their licensing have changed so that mm. uh you it's now free to use unreal um and you owe them no royalties until your game makes over a million dollars and then you owe them five percent of everything after that um and that has changed the previous deal it was already free to use until you make a certain amount of revenue but the certain amount of revenue before was three thousand dollars three thousand to one million yeah Um, and i feel like the three thousand thing that's so low that um that almost feels like it's not about encouraging you to use the engine it's more like well, honestly, if a game completely flopped, we're not going to hassle you with the bookkeeping of actually sending us the money. <laughs> like that's right. that's so insignificant. Just don't bother. Yeah. Uh, whereas this feels like an actual thing. Like, oh, you can make a successful game and pay us nothing, um, yeah. and we'll just make our money off the ones that really take off. Yeah, that was really impressive. I, I also that stuck out to me. Um, you know, I mean, a million dollars is a pretty you know it's a pretty good bar. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if I, mean, I assume that's kind of like you know, aimed directly at the people who would normally use Unity. So, you know, I imagine yeah. that's got to be pretty appealing. And that's yeah, pretty it's, much, it's an that's like a, that's probably what, like 80% of all indie games, probably 90, <laughs> maybe 95% of all indie games would have a, an entirely free engine if they want it. Are you, are you using Unity, Soren? We are using Unity. Yeah. Yeah. We jumped on that somewhat early on in Offworld. And so now it's like we're all of, you know, it's we're kind of in the grooves right like <laughs> everything we do is yeah. like kind of built for that and uh it seems to work fine you know i mean like we have headaches but i kind of feel like any engine is going to have headaches and um you know i'm not super aware of of like uh something that specifically would would change things for us but honestly we're not in a <laughs> You can get some context here. Like, I am absolutely not in a point where I'm evaluating engines, right? Like, that's like the last thing you want to do when you just <laughs> released a game. So, it's not something I thought about. Like, the, the video came out, and there was like kind of a moment for me. I was like, this is all running on a PlayStation 5. And I was like, 
are PlayStation 5s out? Like, <laughs> I didn't actually know. I, and I didn't even remember that they're announced. I mean, it's hard when you're a developer because you forget what like is public and what's what's not. And I don't even know. I guess they have announced it, right? But they are not actually out, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so very good. Yeah. I was going to I mean, ask you, like, because obviously it came out. Oh, sorry, Tom. Do you want to? I was going to move on to, to um, Old World, but did you have another? Yeah, we should. Uh, I was just going to say that the PlayStation 5 announcement has been weirdly gradual. It's been the sort of like, oh, it exists, but we're not saying what it's called. Well, it's called the thing you thought it was called. Well, here are some really <laughs> deep technical details, but no real announcements. Yeah. And here's a picture of the controller. And it's just like weird drips and drabs that no one of them is, is particularly exciting. Yeah. The, um, I should say the thing that really excited us was the multiplayer stuff that they announced. Um, because, you know, Old World is on the Epic Store. Um, and... You know, we used uh, Steamworks for uh, Offworld, which was, mm. you know, a great solution at the time, but, you know, led to a lot of problems now in the sense that, like, we've actually had to kind of, like, pull Steamworks out of Offworld so that we can move it to other stores because that was kind of the the devil's bargain you made with Steamworks, right? You got all huge a huge leg up, but you're, like, very much shackled to Steam. Um, and Epic is just apparently just saying, here's all our stuff and use it and you can use it wherever, anywhere you want. And, um, so, you know, we're going to be trying, you know, we're going to be trying to transition over the stuff we're using right now for our multiplayer system. So it's actually coming at a, a pretty good time for us. Mm. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, um, yeah. <laughs> we're not using the system at all, are we? <laughs> we have a system for ensuring Alex and I don't speak at the same time when we're not using it. <laughs> Um, I wanted to just say, oh yeah, so so Epic's uh, like Steamworks equivalent is mm-hmm. going to be free for anyone to use, even if they're not using Unreal and even if they're not on Epic Store. Is that right? Yeah, it's just anyone anyone can use it. Yeah, they're they're an interesting company because like uh, we often since we use Unity and you know as we told people like yeah we're going to be on Epic, we got a lot of questions of like oh really they're okay with you because. You guys are using the <laughs> Unreal Engine, but actually, it was actually a plus. They were actually really excited to work with us because um, they wanted to show people that, like, yeah, Unity games should be on the Epic Store, right? Like, they have they don't have any interest in like trying to make their store only for Unreal games, right? Like, they wanted to make sure people yeah. saw like here's this big Unity game and it's on our store and it's great and they're doing fine and you know it's no problem. Um, so, but yeah, we're really it's, it's it'd be great to get get all of the, because right now we're kind of traveling to cobble together all of our multiplayer scuff stuff through various different systems. Like we have some game spark stuff in there and we have some, um, uh, unity stuff in there. And if there was just like one solution that was free and covered all that, that'd be great. I know, I know my, um, like my wife, uh, my wife and I, we run the studio together and she's been like, bugging them incessantly about how she wants achievements in the game and so she's finally all right great now we can finally start actually doing this stuff um and uh so yeah i think our team is is hoping that it it, you know it works as good as it sounds yeah um do you want to pitch old world to anyone who's not familiar with it uh sure all right so uh old world is a um hmm. it's a in some ways, a very traditional 4X turn-based strategy game, right? You know, you you build an empire up from a settler up to, you know, a, 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 you know well, not globe-spanning, but map-spanning, spamming, spanning, spanning, well, maybe both. <laughs> spanning and spamming uh, empire. Um, and so, you know, you have a lot of the, the 
you know, sort of the core tenets of what you see in a Civ game. But I think if you scratch deeper, you'll kind of see that almost every system is reworked in some very significant ways. Um, you know, kind of one of the, the big ones is uh, we have this order system that completely changes the way you move units. You know, traditionally in, in, in 4X games, you just move every unit every turn the way you would in, frankly, tons of games, even going to like war games, right? Like physical games, right? Um, and, you know, it was just a very familiar setting and i you know we wanted to see what it'd be like if instead you said hey here are you know orders are a resource you know these games are very much about resources what if your actions were a resource right so you can use your uh, orders to move units however you want to so if you want to just spend all your orders moving just this one scout during your turn you can do that that's up to you um and uh, i'd say the other big thing that's worth mentioning is that this is a game that's actually at a human scale um so a game like Civ, um, you know, has leaders, but they're very much kind of like these abstract, almost, they're almost more like gods than people, right? Mm. Because they last for thousands of years and <laughs> they never really change and, you know, so on. And, um, you know, in our game, you start at, you know, if you're Greece, you start as Philip, Philip II, right? And you're a certain age and you're married to Olympias and you have Alexander as like a 14-year-old. Um, and you're going to get older and eventually you're going to die and Alexander's going to take over. Right. And he's, his life is, you know, might turn out one way or might turn out another way, or he might even die before, you know, before you do and someone else will, will take over. Um, and you know that, so we have this whole sort of like character slash family slash event system going on in the background that, you know, might be, you know, the, the real rough comparison, right. This is something like Crusader Kings. Um, so, you know, we were kind of trying to hybrid hybridize that into like a forex setting. Yeah, the thing that really shocked me when I played it was um, I think I, I knew that you were doing the order system. I knew that you were, had some Crusader Kings type elements of lineage and, and you know, personal stuff going on. And I just assumed that between the lines that that meant you were doing a much pared down, very simplistic version of Civ plus those two, you know, interesting new additions. But then when I played it, I was I found it was like is almost a completely fully fledged Civ game. Like I'm not... I played a lot of Civ, but I've only probably finished one game <laughs> in my life of any Civ. Right. Um, you know, which is to say, I've played it for hundreds of hours. Yes, <laughs> of course, like everyone else, I only finished understand. the one time. Um, and so I'm, uh, I am someone who kind of like wants to like the genre more than I do, um, but that means I'm not a hundred percent okay with every feature. So I can't actually tell what you've taken out of Civ. I can see what you've mm. added. You added loads of cool stuff on top. But right. to me, it seems like you've made an entire civilization game and then also added these things. Yeah. Uh, have you simplified it? Well, I don't know about simplified. Um, I mean, it's simplified in the sense that I think one of the issues that Civ runs into is that the uh, the premise of the game is just inherently appealing. The fan, you know, the fantasy of the game, the thing that sells it, right? All of human history, right? Like, you know, mm. there, there's a tendency for, you know, consumers and for marketing where you know more is always better right and it's hard to it's hard to compete with that right <laughs> yeah. um, but you know from a practical point of view of what makes an enjoyable game experience like that leads to a lot of problems right um you can't just sort of like be like okay we're going to say we're about all of human history but we're going to kind of blur things so like it goes fast enough like you know at some point you actually sit down and say like well what's the actual experience we want the user to have right like how many hours should they be playing this game how many turns should we play in this game and at least in my work as a civ designer, like I kept hitting that boundary of like, 
you know, if you try to shrink it down too much, people are like, well, where's the muskets, you know, or where's this certain, my favorite part of history. Right. And, uh, makes it really difficult. Um, so, uh, now I've actually lost track of the original question, but, uh, it was about complexity. Right. So <laughs> was, yeah. What have you removed? Yeah. So just that you, we don't, we're not shackled to this like enormous scope, I think is kind of freeing. Like you can, I, I, I hope you are able to finish a game of old world because it is, it is kind of meant very much meant to be finished. Like it's not, it's not a, it, it, it will take, you know, it will take a lot of time. I mean, these are definitely like 10 plus hour games, um, but they're how, meant how to. How do you end it? Just out of interest. Like how, oh, how, sure. what is the um, end point? So there's two paths. Uh, this took a long time, you know, like I could probably give a whole talk on just the victory conditions here because there's just this very <laughs> basic game design lesson here of like your, your eventual solution will always be like way simpler and dumber than the one you think it would have been. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like just, and it's always like, well, why couldn't I have just done the simple thing at the beginning, right? Like <laughs> it would certainly be a lot easier to code, right? And sometimes it actually, design. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes it actually does work. Like I think it's, it's to some sense, it's important to be a lazy programmer when you're, you're, you're a game designer, right? To prevent yeah. yourself from like overdoing it. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so we went through all sorts of very complicated systems where like you have points for all, we had sort of like the point salad approach at a certain period of time and like you'd commit to different <laughs> paths. And I'll tell you the one thing I, I didn't want. Like I, I do think that uh, a lot of Forex games have, 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 you know, like there's this kind of like a standard way you do victories. There's like, oh, we're gonna have like four or five different flavors, right? We're gonna have like a culture thing and a diplomacy thing and a conquest thing and like an expansion thing and a religion thing and blah, 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 right? You have all these different things. Um, and I don't really think that's a good idea. Um, like I, uh, uh, because basically at that point, you're, um, first of all, oh, what's the right way to put this? Okay, so a very negative experience is if you're playing a forex game and you're you're doing merrily along and you're focusing on something, you're focusing on, you know, your scientific victory or, or whatever, right? And then just suddenly, like, bang, out of nowhere, you kind of get this message like, hey, guess what? You just lost the game because, you know, <laughs> Greece just won a religious victory. And you're like, what? You know, and it's, yeah. it, it's very likely that you were not heavily involved in whatever counters that buckets they were trying to fill to get their victory, right? And so it's kind of like, you know, is there a purpose here? Like what, how is that a good experience? Right. Like I, I do remember a couple early on Civ one games where like I had a science race and it was close with the AI and it was like, that was like an actually an actual good experience, but that's like kind of like the last time I remember having a good experience in that regard. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's because we both had, we, you know, there was what kind of basically one yardstick. I mean, I, I believe Civ one, it was just like, science and then you know kind of the default which is like conquest which is okay yeah if you do eliminate all your sieves the game is going to end because what else would it do right um and so if you do have sort of one yardstick like that that works right and so that's basically what we have we have a victory point system which was not intended at all for single player it was just what we did for multiplayer um and it works great in multiplayer you know it's just um X number of, uh, you get a point for every city. You get an extra point if it's a legendary city, which is uh, like a, a the highest culture level. And then you get a point for every wonder uh, and holy site. Um, huh. And that's it, 
right? And yeah, before the game begins, we kind of do some math to figure out like, well, what should the target be based off of how many city sites there are on the map, how many wonders there are in the game, how many players there are, because you want to kind of divide it up. You know, the threshold should be higher if there's only two players in the game versus if there's like 10, right? Uh, seven, that's our maximum. But um, for a single player. Um, so you do some math and you come up with some number and then you see that number very early in the game. Right, we're like, ah, here's me. I have four victory points, and the, the the Romans have seven. Right, but we need to get to thirty. So I know I have some time. And then you see if like one of the AI starts getting closer to that number, you're like, okay, well now I should start paying attention to them and do something about them if they if they start pulling away. Yeah. And so that's that's okay, but that I don't think that would have been sufficient. So we have a second victory condition, which is the ambition uh, victory. Um, and this is one I'm really excited about, and I think it's I think it's pretty good now, but like, I'm going to put a lot of more effort into, into like improving the system. And this is kind of like a quest based victory system where it's based off of, as you play the game at various points, you're able to choose different ambitions, right? And so the ambitions might be, you know, capture three Carthaginian cities or, you know, build the pyramids or, uh, you know, research six technologies or, you know, an act um, you know, you know, theocracy or, or something like that, right? Like, you know, various things and the game is going to pick them dynamically as they go, making each ambition a little more difficult than the last one. And also it, it feeds into the event system. So if you have three families and one of them is scientific and one of them is militaristic, one of them is cultural, they're going to ask for different types of ambitions that they want you to achieve based off of, uh, you know, their, their, their bias. So you're, you know, every time through an ambition victory, it's going to be a different 10 sets of, of essentially quests. Right. And if you if you complete all 10, then you just win, period. Right. And it's just recognizing that you you were a great civilization that or great empire, great nation, whatever you want to call it. Right. That, that's all it's recognizing. And you don't have to worry about, you know, beating or destroying the AI. And most importantly, the AI does not have ambitions at all. The AI doesn't do events. Oh, right. The AI doesn't do ambitions. So there is there's there's at no point will you be like, hey, guess what? The, you know, the Greeks got their 10th ambition. Sorry, game's over. Right. <laughs> yeah that um that system was cool to play around with i was surprised uh, i because there is this universal victory point system i saw that early on and that okay in my game it's 26 everyone's trying to get to 26 and i've got right. four and everyone else has five um and then i was chasing it i think before that point i was already focusing on ambitions because i that was a really clear easy objective to follow right up right up right. front and i think the first one was pretty easy um and so I was kind of expecting that making progress on that would also get me victory points. But now that you explain it, I see why those are separate systems. Yeah, um, they have to be the kind of thing. Sorry, you have, you have to be kind of orthogonal, right? It's a little bit like you played uh, King of Tokyo, right? Like, mm. right? Oh, the board game. Like, yeah, like there's like two yeah. very different ways to win there. One is by like accumulating stars, which is like you know basically success, and the other is like by dying, right? Um, and you know, it makes the game very interesting that there are you know, these two paths that they're, that, that are separate, you know, they, you know, they have some influence over each other, but they're all, but they're like, there are, there are different tracks. Right? Yeah. Um, I think I liked about the ambition system was that because there's three options every time um, I was often able to sort of lean into something I was going to do anyway. <laughs> like right. sure. I just got to a point where I've, I've got archer technology and every archer costs a hundred wood, and I I didn't have lumber mill technology until just recently. Sure. Um, and in fact, maybe I didn't even have it when I got off of the ambition. And so I knew, like, I just need loads of wood anyway. Like, I have to focus on this next because I need all these archers. Um, and the range units seem really useful, so I wanted to go for loads of those. 
And then one of my possible ambitions was like harvest 800 lumber. And uh, that seemed like a lot, but I thought, well, I'm going to need 800 lumber anyway to make eight archers. So let's just go for that and focus on everything on it. Um, and that was kind of cool. Yep. I am like where I've ended up with that is I, I think I've got like three ambitions done and you, I think you have to get 10 to win. Uh, right. But then on the victory point leaderboard, I'm pretty much top. I think there's one other sieve that's ahead of me now, but only by one point. Right. And so I'm kind of that for me now is telling me, oh, just forget about ambitions. Don't worry about them at all. And just sure. pick whatever. Yeah. Um, now, ambitions are intended? worth legitimacy, which give you orders uh, and make okay. your families happy and like, and also do other various good things for you. So like ambitions are worth pursuing just in and of themselves. Um, so for right. what it's worth. I didn't get very far into um, my ambitions because um, uh, I got, I probably played I don't know, I played a good, probably about four or five hours. So mm -hmm. I was, you know, coming along, I had four or five fizzies, everything was looking good. And then Romulus, Romulus went crazy on me. Mm -hmm. He was, he was very, very, he was acting incredibly, um, all, like I got, the story system in it, I really have really been enjoying so far. You know, the, um, the, the way that the characters really come through in a way that kind of, you know, in civilization, Everyone knows about Gandhi and and so on and so on, the aggressive ones and the kind of, you know, uh, um, but in this one you get so much more context and right. and I was really surprised. I mean, I don't know very much about the history of Romulus, but he was unhinged from the very moment <laughs> I I I, um, I met him, uh, and and I kind of spent several years um, placating him. Until he finally lost it, just lost it, and then annihilated me. He just absolutely <laughs> annihilated me, and that and that was the end of uh, Nebuchadnezzar right there. <laughs> oh man! But um, but I, yeah, I was wondering about um, you know, sort of, we've talked about a lot of um, mechanics that are underrunning all this, but I actually found the experience of playing much more emotional um, in a really good way. Yeah. Um... Yeah, we're we're hearing that a lot. People are feeling like much more emotionally connected to the game. You know, I mean, they have they feel like they have stakes on it in it. You know, like they help you know raise some of these kid you know these kids who eventually you know become the heir and then become the ruler, and um, you know, I mean, it's about people, right? Like, I don't think people ever really connected to these sort of like immortal leaders the same way you would to someone who you you know remember as a baby and then eventually you see them you know grow old, old and die, right? Like it's a very different it's a very different experience. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. Like you have a lot of attachment to your obviously your own heirs. Um, right. You know, you're, you're just informed you've given birth, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> you get to make a lot of decisions about how you bring them up, and you know their education is going to determine what their stats they have when you eventually play as them, which is cool. But something I hadn't thought about until I played is that the other factions are doing this too, right. and a really clever thing you've done is that some of the story events ask you to pick sides between an enemy leader and their heir. Right. So, yes. or, or one <laughs> yeah. of that, it's actually, it's not as clear cut as that because you don't even, at least I didn't know whether the child in question was their heir. I assumed it was. I just thought, oh, they've got a kid, so their kid will take over. So, yeah. uh, it might be in my long term interest to do the thing that their kid wants me to do, like they're yep. having some disagreement and you're, you, you're invited to chime in on it. Yep. And maybe I want to make the kid happy because by the time I need their, their help, the, the current ruler will be dead and the, the kid will take over. And I did that. And, uh, then, 
eventually the the ruler did die long before it was Greek Greece and um, right. uh, the ruler died long before I needed their help with anything. But then somebody else was the actual heir. I kind of forgot that people could have more than one child. <laughs> like, well, I won favor with some irrelevant, like, yep. royal. Yeah, because yeah, I did wonder that because um, I had the, a similar situation, and I sheltered the heir who didn't want to be um, to be ruler. And I should have picked up on the subtext of the fact that he didn't want to be ruler. He'd fallen yeah. out with his parents. <laughs> They're probably not going to make him ruler anymore, yeah. are they? And also, he's in my city. So, <laughs> yeah. So there, there's actually an event that that can lead to. It just doesn't always happen where you're able to basically put that person back on the throne of that country. Mm. And then, of Excellent. course, you have this great ally. So, um, yeah. I mean, the... Uh, the neat thing about the event system is that the it has a whole bunch of events, but they're not necessarily tightly coupled, right? So, um, you know, like you might see the same event a couple times, but it might lead to different, you know, might lead to a different experience, you know, three or four different ways, right? Um, based off of like, you know, how how other things happen in the game that that it can go to. Um, and uh uh, and like we have a lot of like some events are very much specifically like okay if you so what you're talking about was the runaway prince or princess event right um, mm-hmm. and we have events that trigger just off of that right but we have other events that trigger off of the different traits you can pick up right so like a good example of that is the like the mourning trait I don't know if you had any kids die but like that's one thing that can yeah. happen to you if you have a kid die you go into mourning um, and then we have a bunch of events that happen to basically okay do you have a leader is the leader in mourning okay then this thing can happen right. Um, and what's really about nice about that is like two years from now, some other writer could um, uh, like right now, you know, we have a pretty small writing team. Like it's, uh, my, my wife is leading the, leading the writing and then we have another writer who's, who's also doing some. Um, and so, you know, they're pretty closely tied into what each of the other one is doing. Right. And um, uh, but like a couple of years from now, we're probably going to be hiring other writers to do stuff, right? And so, you know, they don't necessarily need to know about all these other events. All they need to do is be like, okay, morning. Well, that sounds interesting. I'm going to write a bunch of events that can happen if the leader is in morning, right? And so now you have this new set of story sequences happen that wouldn't have happened before. Hmm. Right. That's, uh, I think Alex and I both went into morning and we were both uh, slightly shocked by how brief it was because it would be like two turns <laughs> later. Ah, oh, you're fine now. <laughs> But of course, yeah. a, turn, a turn is a year, so it's not it's not brief in in real time. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it didn't last long for either of us. Yeah. Um, I was curious though about the stories. Um, there's a fine line. I mean, every it feels sometimes like every developer I know is on some level trying to tackle procedural storytelling, <laughs> and you know, some combination of narrative and generated elements um, is just this this endless. Um, uh, holy grail that everyone's kind of chasing in different ways and it's it, famously hard and it's uh, famously has a lot of casualties along the road um, and 4x games are actually one of the few types of games that that reliably generates story something immediately be called story uh, that the player can tell at least um, that is different each time and and is interesting when you do written story events that pop up on the screen and actually just tell you what happened in words um, uh, it seems to me there's kind of a a spectrum maybe between you know an, an event thing pops up and says this ruler has died and their heir took over that to me is a, an event as opposed to like a narrative like it's a it's a plot beat that will form part of my story but that can happen in every game i ever play and i'll never sort of read that and think oh the same as last time 
it'll always be like, oh, you're informing me of some mechanical thing that's occurred and mm. you can repeat that as many times as you like and it'll never grow old. Whereas when you tell a story of like a prince running away from their ruler and they seek sought refuge with you, there's a certain kind of specificity to that in terms of how you tell that story and, and uh, write it that if that happens in every game I play, it might start to feel kind of stale. And I was just curious if you if that was a concern and if you how you try to navigate it. Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely a concern. I mean, we're trying to... Um... I think we're going with the like quantity is a quality in all of its own sort of approach. <laughs> like we have, uh, we have over like a thousand events right now. Wow. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we want to ship with at least a couple thousand, you know, if not, if not more, um, you know, I know, the uh, Layla and Andrew are working really hard on like trying to crank out as many as they can. And like, you know, we want to get, we want to get other ones in. Um, it's, it's um, it's the different like it's kind of why this was why I was talking about the different kind of like the loose connections between them right because for sure you know eventually yeah I think you know you're right like the the runaway prince event you know like you know at some point you won't be reading the flavor text because you're like I know what this is right mm. um, but the question is the different choices you make based off of it. Um, could lead to all sorts of other things. So you're going to be thinking about like all the other events. Like if one of the options is like, well, this makes the, um, this makes the, uh, you know, the other leader disappointed in me or angry with me or something, then that means that, um, uh, that means that uh, it could lead to all these other specific things. So you're thinking of all the different connections, not necessarily like a set specific event. Um, and, uh, you know, we're also, the other thing we're doing is, you know, we have a, a nice analytic system where, you know, we can download a spreadsheet that'll show, you know, for the thousand events we have right now, how often are they being, being triggered? Um, like a couple of the events that you guys mentioned are ones we're actually like aware of right now, that ones that, that tend to come up a lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll then, you know, we're then gonna make changes to be like, okay, these specific events here are too general. Right. Like some of them are very specific. They're like, okay, if you have a leader who's a hero and their spouse is a schemer and the schemer has a child, then it might blah, blah, blah. Right. It'll be like, oh, and then you'll have this really cool event that, like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like the Olympias, uh, uh, you know, Alexander type situation where like she's like scheming to get him on the throne or something. Um, and uh, so, like, like that's really cool, but it's much more, it's just, it's just less likely to occur. Right. And we want to get to kind of that place where the events feel much more specific and we aren't having like we aren't having any events that are like, oh, wow, this this event here basically happens every time someone plays. So, you know, we're going to use that to try to fix that. And then we also the, the analyst system also lets us see like what options people choose. Right. Because that's another whole side of it. Right. Like even if uh, it's, it's just as big of a problem, if um, if we have if we have a wide variety of, excuse me, a wide variety of events, so you very rarely see them twice, but when they come up, everyone's always choosing the same thing. That's another big problem. Yeah. I was wondering also what kind of stories you and the team are looking to tell. Like, is does every ruler have the same kind of uh, um, themes of stories and the same balance of those themes of stories? So, um, as, you know, specific stories relate, that relate to them, but but which perform certain roles in terms of their relationships with other nations, um, internal politics, family feuds, that sort of thing. Um, what's, um, I mean, how on earth do you go on about 
um, designing these stories for a game where you need balanced, um, you know, the sense of balance between the, the, each of the, the civilizations. Um, and also uh, they've got to work with all the other resource systems because obviously this is still a, it's a 4X game and, you know, you're collecting wood and gold and, and all these other things across the across your nation. How how is that all sort of how do they all dovetail together? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I actually have a super great answer for that. Um, like because our system is kind of very much embracing the chaos of like, okay, we're going to write all these events that you know have all of these different prerequisites where like any event you write can. You know, you can add a, a you can add a whole bunch of subjects basically to them, and you can set all these requirements for the subjects, right? Like you have to have a a ruler, and you have a religion that's in your empire, but it's not your state religion, and but one of the families follows it, and this family happens to be upset with you, and mm. and so on, and like you know, I think that um, so that that atomic piece right there, that event, like kind of like makes sense and is cohesive, right? But is that part of some larger plan to sell, to tell some bigger story? Like, I think we're actually kind of stepping back from that, right? Like our hope is as long as like each event makes sense and is written well, and is true to something like this, you know, it's, you know, the sum is greater than the parts, right? Like you'll, people will, and we're starting to see the sum in the, the forums and the discord where people will tell these stories about what happened to their ruler. And it's a lot of stuff where we're like, I, you know, I don't really, you know, they're, they're getting the sense of these characters that we haven't designed ourselves. Right. And, uh, so that's my hope, <laughs> right? Like I'm trying not to, we're trying not to like hold on too tightly to like any, any specific narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, it can be a little scary, but like, I think, I think in the long run, like that'll be really cool to see what happens. Yeah. I think there's, there's a kind of player who, um, will love that stuff and and is is very happy to read their own story into to piece right. the events together in their head and tell the story and even insert you know embellish parts of it to sort of make it make more sense yeah. um and those players uh are are very <laughs> it sounds kind of bad but i want to say easy to please because <laughs> like, i mean I, I sort of had some experience with this with heat signature which is just very bare bones on the story side of things of like who your character is and what their relationships are we intentionally just did the bare minimum just to say it's you're trying to rescue your husband and that's all you know about your husband and that you get their name and with enough of those people do piece them together and thread them into a narrative and and they'll uh play into it it's kind of it's almost like improv where that they they're willing to bring something to it themselves and uh and work with it and they enjoy what they get back and i suspect i don't really know for sure but i think there's probably a, a class of player who won't do that who are just like oh no if you're not going to tell me a story i'm not willing to make it up myself um right. and i won't when these events come in in a bare bones form they don't move me and um uh it's not what i'm here for yep. and those players i think it's i don't think there's anything to be done about that i don't think you'll ever get them like uh, there's there's some fundamental difference there, and and so yeah. I kind of think with with generated versus written narrative, we don't really need the middle ground. I don't think the middle ground really serves anybody because the people who want who want a human written narrative want a human written narrative, and you'll never trick them into thinking they're getting one when they're not. Yeah, and the people who don't need that are really happy already and, and enjoying this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of look at it as three classes of people, which is somewhat similar to what you are. Which is there are people who just they enjoy you know whatever they enjoy Uncharted or maybe um, 
the other one I'm blanking on now, the zombie one is like a better example, right? But um, the uh, Last of Us, yes, the Last of Us, right? Like that's that's what they want, right? And great, they're not going to get that from from Old World, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, and then there's people who who like the you know chaotic, you know, like bottom up narrative thing that you will get in Crusader Kings, right? And we're you know we think we you know that's something we we hope people will want to do and then there's other people who just know that like okay they're putting flavor on these events but like the events are really just a bunch of choices right um and so we care about them too right like we want the decisions you make in the events to be difficult right that's why we're you know i talked about the analytics some right like you know we really we really think that like the events should be significant and they can they should be able to and this is a big thing like another thing i'm really interested in is replayability right like one of the things i'm trying to fix uh, with the way a lot of you know, 4X games are, is they have this certain like momentum problem. Um, something that the the Civ community calls the Eternal China Syndrome, which is that um, you know once you kind of your Civ gets rolling in one direction in Civ, like it just keeps going that way, right? And like it's a battleship, it's not really you, the game. It, halfway through the game, things are just not going to change, right? They just you have you've achieved internal cohesion, and it's just going to get better, right? Um, Whereas, um, you know, like, you know, events and leaders changing and and also leaders changing of other civs where that will change the diplomatic, you know, play field. Like all these things are ways where, you know, we can inject variety into the game as it happens, you know, which is, you know, something I think that is, is generally speaking difficult to do in a Forex game that's not like at a human scale. Yeah. I, with the events and story system i had uh i put my leader as a general because you can mm-hmm. um yep. so for those who haven't played you can attach your uh your leader to either be uh, a governor of a city and, and boost them in a, in a kind of passive way or you can attach them to a military unit and they'll boost that as well um and i obviously like the idea of just marching around the the world with my actual leader right. and normally in a game i think like it would be it would be game over if you lost your leader, right? So that would be right. the most precious unit. It's your king in chess. It's it's the absolute um, life or death one. Um, but when you have heirs and and me as I as the player am not playing as this person exactly. I'm more playing as the lineage. Um, you can afford to be a bit more reckless. And so I was like, sure, attach them to a military unit. I, if they die, <laughs> I want to see what happens when they die. For one thing, um, and then I in some kind of it, I. I had a combat encounter. I was, you know, defeating some. I think it was the Gauls, um, and I fell off my horse and shattered my knee. Yep. <laughs> and uh, one of the one of the options in response to that event was to basically broadcast this to your entire civilization. Like I can pay some quite a significant amount of money to tell everybody in our whole society that this happened, which boosts. I think it was the the training stat, the kind of military like. Right. Yep. Uh, experience thing. <laughs> it's like, look, I've shed up my knee, but I'm going to tell every single person in my entire empire that this happened, and that's going to yep. inspire them. I guess. At first, I thought like, oh, this is this is kind of funny because. Um, uh, me falling off my horse like an idiot and breaking my knee probably shouldn't give all my uh, my whole military like a buff. But then I thought about it and the, the stat is not like military strength, it's training. And right. so really, they're just learning a lesson from me. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, don't fall off your horse like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. I heard you could haul up, fall off horses. Let's not do that anymore. <laughs> uh, breaking yeah. valuable new ground. Yeah. The um, Yeah, that, so that the, the thing is, is that... Um, 
and uh, you may remember that we used to have a different name, right? Like we were called 10 crowns. Um, and that was built around the idea of that you would have 10 lives, right? And like when they're over, uh, the game was right. over, right? Uh. And like, uh, unfortunately, that was a that was a great fantasy. It was like easy to, to sell that. But the problem then is, be, is then you get very like, you get very careful and concerned and like, you know, like, uh, you know, even, even if you know that like you have five lives left, you know, like just the fact that like your leader can die is going to stress you out, you know? And, you know, like we really want people just to embrace like the, you know, the question of like, well, what could happen? Right. Like, you know, someone brings you a, uh, you know, you get some mysterious package, right. You know, like, do you open it? Like, well, like we want, we want people to like, see where the story takes them and know that like, well, okay, if one, if, you know, if your king dies, you're going to have some errors and like, then the story just goes a different direction. Um, and you can, you know, you can hopefully, hopefully embrace that. Whereas like we had really a hard time making that work before. Um, and, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. That's, that's, uh, that is a great, like one line concept, you know, so yeah. you say that it's exciting, but I think <laughs> all, all the reasons it's exciting are the same reasons that it, that it, uh, pollutes the player's decisions because yeah, yeah. If you, even if 10 is absolutely plenty even if like nobody is using all the 10 of their lives and six is more than enough even if you're playing recklessly just knowing there's a limit is going to push the player to to avoid any risk yeah yeah game design is funny how that works because like you know i i sort of gave that spiel to you know many many people over the last three or four years right and like you know a lot you know people would basically nod along and they're like oh that sounds awesome that sounds great you know right and like I don't remember even one of them being like, "Hey, wait a minute!" <laughs> like this isn't this isn't going to work. And I mean, I'm talking about like you know very good veteran game designers, right? And like uh, so, it's just one of these things. Like sometimes, like what 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 sounds good when you describe it is much different from like what works when you <laughs> when you have to make it work. Yeah. You know? And I guess you also want serendipity to happen. And, you know, often in games which are kind of generated like that, you have the players have to roll with punches with with your ruler just dying out of nowhere, which is a good story beat. Um, but, you know, you have to kind of, I guess as a designer, you have to um, carve out, sort of sculpt a space for that to happen so it isn't frustrating, so you can appreciate the story aspect of it and enjoy the, the challenge of, you know, the next ruler that comes in. Did you ever think about calling it a thousand crowns? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really tried to make it work for a while. Like the 10 ambitions were originally called 10 crowns. Like I was like, okay, I got uh, it. Guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we'll, just, we'll just call ambitions crowns and it'll work quite right. And, uh, the team didn't, didn't like that at all. Layla in particular was just like, Soren, you can't do this. <laughs> I'm disallowing Let it. Go. <laughs> and then, like she kind of led the re revolt. You know, they all sat me down in, in the, the, the the conference room and said, like, you know, this is uh, this has to end. We we need to. And it actually, was pretty late. I, I think it was March, maybe, where we made that call. March or February. It was definitely this oh. year. Um, so yeah, we like we called our up our you know our trademark lawyer and like. February, yeah, I think it might have been February. Um, and uh, we called up our, our trademark lawyer and we're like, uh, so, you know, we're, we're doing the thing that you probably don't want to hear. <laughs> we need you to do some some research. Um, and surprisingly, Old World, I actually thought Old World might not be available as much as I thought it would um, because it's, you know, uh, it's kind of hard to name games with names that are like kind of open, you know, open-ended, right? Um mm. You know, like a lot of them, frankly, are taken. Like we wanted to call it Offworld Training Company. We just wanted to call it Offworld, but there was some obscure mobile game called Offworld. So like we couldn't huh. do it. 
right? And that was just that. Um, the biggest the biggest one we ran into was just that like so apparently Amazon is coming out with this game called New World. Um, yeah, and it was actually originally supposed to ship in May. And so when we changed the whole world, we're like, like, all right, well, we're just going to, we've got all sorts of problems with this name. Like we have another game called Off World and there's a game called New World coming out. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I, maybe we're, 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 we're approaching like Outer Worlds, Outer Wilds territory. Yeah, I don't know. You could have go to Old Wilds. <laughs> well, it's, it's still out there if someone wants that one. So. Older Wilds, if you yeah. want to go with the Old <laughs> Both um, Tom and I really um, enjoyed the order system, which you um, mentioned when you were giving us the elevator pitch. Right. Um, I um, I really enjoyed the way it gave me more to think about in the early game as well. You know, the scouting phase, right. um, and and I was interested in the way that because you, you know, as you as you explore, you come across um, uh, uh, sources of resources like elephants and sorghum and wheat and gold yep. and things. Um, and you can harvest them with scouts and they also replenish, which gave that early game. And then well, actually get, it, it made that early game um, exploration feeling persist for much longer than it does in most synth games, which I really enjoyed. And that really seemed to mesh really nicely with the order system, which, you know, made me think about, you know, how many things I was able to do per turn was was. Are those two things linked together in your head as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I just think it, it really changes the way that you approach a turn, right? Like, uh, like one thing we get asked a lot is how many turns is the game, right? Um, and, you know, like the, we basically draw a finish line at like 200 turns. Um, but we've been hearing of people who are, you know, winning games, uh, you know, at turn like 110 or 120 or 130. I mean, we're hearing of plenty of people are losing games too. I think a lot of people are not used to, um, it's a new system and <laughs> they're having, they're <laughs> discovering that the AI can wipe you out if it, if it, if it, uh, if it decides to, uh, because I mean, we can go into the whole combat side. That's another question, but like, we're, I think a lot of people are used to winning games and Civ styles games defensively, but just like, I'm going to get some good units and I'm just gonna let the AI smash themselves against me. Right. Um, and you don't, uh, you don't take any damage when you attack someone in old world. Well, you take one point if you're emulate, but whatever. Um, and so that really changes the, the feel of the game, right? Um, so, but at any rate, people ask how many turns the game is, right? But the thing is you can't, it's not really apples to apples, right? Like a turn in old world uh, is a lot more meaty than like a, a turn in like a, a Civ game or whatever, because if mm -hmm. you can only, if you move, if you just had, can only move your scout once in your turn, I mean, and you can only do one thing with each worker, um, you know, and maybe not even, you know, you're, you're going to try to move somewhere, but it's going to take you three or four turns to get to the place that you want to build the mine or the farm or whatever. Like, you know, every turn is, it's, it's much more like stop motion, you know, animation or something. Right. Whereas, um, you know, in old world, really the question every turn is like, well, you've got a bunch of orders. What do you want to do? Right. Like it's, you know, uh, do you want to go explore? Do you want to go build? You know, like early on, especially if people start playing at the, you know, the lower levels, it will kind of feel, I think, a little bit more like Civ where you've got plenty of orders and you just, you know, you kind of just move everybody how you'd like to. Um, but, you know, ideally people start moving up and st begin to experience like the game is really interesting when you just do not have enough orders. And like there's always just, a you know, a few less orders than you need to do what you want mm -hmm. to do. Yeah, I was... Um... 
I was excited about this game on the basis of the order system, mostly because I wanted it to reduce the amount of work I do in a Civ game. You know, I right. said this before, but um, uh, I just, the reason I have finished so few games of Civ is I get to this point where I have so many units and there's so much I have to do every turn to be yep. efficient and it's not interesting. Every, yep. every move I'm making is boring. They're all just moving things towards where I know I want them to be. I'm not making any decisions. Um, but I wasn't... Uh, thinking that the order system uh, was going to increase the amount of thinking I would do. Like right. uh, once <laughs> once the limit of orders is actually, you know, less than the units you have or less than the moving every unit every turn, um, it suddenly becomes uh, not only do you have to decide, uh, you know, which are, uh, what orders, sorry, what units you're going to move and what, what units you aren't, but also you kind of you don't know always like i you don't start a civ turn with a plan in your head of everything you're going to do and right. so because you don't sort of i don't want to sit there and maths out how many orders i have and how much each thing i want to do is going to cost me so instead i have to do things in priority order because there's a, yep. at any time there's a risk i'm just going to run out of orders because i'm not pre-calculating at all right. um and that's really interesting because it, it pushes you to every turn ask yourself what is the most important thing i need to be getting on with and it isn't this scout <laughs> like yes, i've got right. like five different scouts and usually in a civ game i just that's the first thing i do is i move them around and discover some new stuff yep. and it's it's sort of vaguely interesting but really the information is not of any relevance to me because it's the other side of the world and nothing else can actually get there yeah um and I was doing that for Old World for like the first 20 turns or something. And then I got to the point where I'm like, actually, I can't afford the orders on this. This is stupid. <laughs> like, I don't need this information. <laughs> I need to really think about what I want to do here. And yep. it's more important that I make sure all of, well, first of all, all my military units are doing what they need to do. And then once those are all done and I've got some orders left, I probably want to think about what my workers are doing. Cool. And it, uh, Old World still has the the Civ uh, thing of like, there's a button you can click to just do the next thing, like yep. whatever, tell me what the next thing is and do next it. Thing. And yep. in Civ, that is completely, it completely streamlines the experience almost to a fault where I'm just going to click that button and then do whatever I need to do. Basically, because yep. the individual decisions you're making from that point onwards are not that interesting. There's usually an obvious choice. Um, that can, that's part of what made Civ a bit of a drudge for me at times is yeah. I'm just clicking that button. I'm making the decision. The decision itself is easy. The button itself is guiding me to the next decision. It's very slick, but it's, um, uh, it's not super interesting. And here yeah. that button exists, but I had to like break the habit of clicking it. Yep. Like I was, it, I started out just, yeah, okay, next thing, next thing, next thing. And I realized, no, this is leading me down a bad path. I need to step back and like, I'm going to yep. tab through all my units and see which ones I need to move first and yep. uh, work up with that. Yeah, we, and it's kind of a challenge for us because we kind of have, we're kind of like out on a ledge, not on a ledge, but like, you know, we've kind of like jumped off the cliff and sort of like abandoning the, the interface that worked, right? Like, like the SIFI was really the one I think they took a huge step forward of like helping people streamline themselves through the experience. But the thing is like, it's baked into the system at that point that like, it's that type of game, right? Like there's no downside to just leading someone by the nose from unit to unit to unit, right? Um and for sure, like once I got the order system in, it was like this big realization for me that like, you know, wow, like a lot of your worker choices, the reason why, you know, that we let people automate stuff is because the worker choices in Civ are just like, there's no reason not to use an, a worker, right? Um, so it's it's just, it's not a choice, right? Like, and you're making these very small determinations of like, well, it should be a farm or it should be a mine. I mean, okay, I guess, you know, that's that's, that's interesting, but it's it, there's no question that you're going to do something with the worker, right? Um, 
and that's you know that's definitely not true with with old world especially when the wars heat up um so we're we're you know we have elements of the ui that you know has worked for for civ but like we're you know we're going to try to you know we're going to try to figure out ways to make it easier for people to figure out how to prioritize like we're going to in, a, in a, one of our coming updates, we're going to like split the button that lets you cycle through workers and scouts. So it's like just workers and just scouts, like two separate things. And um, there's also a way to like basically, you know, there's like kind of like four or five different things that allow you to cycle through them. We're going to allow you to like basically move those around. So if you're like, okay, I want, I always want to do my military first, you can move those forward, right? And I always, if I want huh. my scouts at the end, you move those back, right? And you can change it from turn to turn depending on where you are in the game, right? Um, so, we're gonna have to figure out this stuff, right? <laughs> Whereas, like, Civ has had twenty-five years, thirty years. Jeez, <laughs> God, it's been a long time of like figuring out what's the right UI for that system. But yeah, this is this is a very different system. But the order system, I, I enjoyed the sort of thematic aspect of it because it seemed to, you know, mirror the, you know, just how much an, an administration could possibly deal with, you know, right. in a year. You know, I really enjoyed yep. that. But like, I, I. I, not all of the game is totally thematic. There's sort of some abstract stuff as well. There's the technology side is sort of reasonably um, abstract in the sense that you get a you don't get um, the the technologies are all based on trees, but the choices you have at any point are not all of the choices that the tree um, could right. possibly give you. Yeah. What was what was behind that that um, decision? Yeah. So um, I should give the. So the, just the basic system is, uh, I mean, it has the technology tree behind it that everyone's familiar with, um, but like uh, the actual way the texts are presented to you are basically more like a deck building game um, in that, you know, when the game begins, it's like, okay, these are the texts you can research. We're going to put them all in a deck and you're going to flip over three of them, right? And you're going to choose one and the ones you don't choose, you're going to throw in the discard pile, right? And also every time you research a tech, the text that it leads to, you also throw in the discard pile. Right. And you keep drawing from your deck every time you're going to choose a tech until, of course, the deck is empty. And then you take the discard pile and you shuffle it and you start over again. Right. And yes. so what that means is each time through the deck, every every tech that comes up, you're only going to get one shot at it. Right. So if like two techs you really, really want, like, you know, sovereignty and uh, lumber mill forestry come up at the same time, like you're going to you're, you're making that choice knowing that you're not going to be able to get that other option for a while. Right. And um, I can't say <laughs> I did. This is one of these things where I didn't really even bother to build a like a thematic wrapper for that. Um, <laughs> I just felt like from experience, it was going to be a better. It was just going to lead to a better game, right? It's going to add more more variety um, because there isn't going to be a set way through the tree. Um, it's going to lead to these tough decisions where you know if you're choosing between these two texts you want, you know that well I'm going to choose this one, but then I'm just going to choose the next one the next time, right? It's not. It's not a tough decision, right? Mm. Because you know you're not you're giving up less, um, and then it also opened up these other kind of weird ideas, like um, the uh, the 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 bonus cards that come up, which are like, hey, you get a free archer, or you get a settler, or you get a bunch of orders, or you get some some food, right? And those only come up once. They basically get trashed if you don't if you don't use them, um, which is something that you know. I mean, I guess we could maybe make it work with the other system, but it seems like it was a very natural fit for the deck. Um, so that's probably the most pure, like abstract, you know, game design thing we have in there. But, you know, the reason why I did it is like, I've got experience from Civ 3 and Civ 4. Like I know that like, there's pretty much a couple established ways through the tech tree and that's it. Right. Um, and you know, I kind of wanted to break that. 
Um, like Stellaris does something similar. You know, I had already kind of like was heading down this path, but like, you know, they had kind of like a, a similar concept. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I did not know that's how it worked at all. <laughs> I, I got that there was some kind of random element, like yeah. it was random what things I was offered, but yeah. um, I didn't realize that not choosing something would delay it by more than, you know, I, I figured I'd still be able to choose the things I didn't choose next next time. Um, yep. Um, yeah, we're working on I, a we're working on a new UI for that system, like where it'll actually show you the shuffling and like you know you mouse over it and be like, here's the discard pile, here's the the, the other pile, like and uh, so hopefully it'll be easier to read going forward. Um, although this does kind of like bring up something I also think is like something I like to do a lot, which is like I like to have optional complexity, right? Like you know if there's this whole system underlying it, but at the end of the day, like you really don't necessarily have to understand it, right? Like if you just accept that, like, hmm, okay, I guess I don't have, I don't get every tech each time. I'm still going to, you know, choose one of these four techs and that'll be, you know, that'll be fine. And I'll just move forward. And then maybe someday I'll actually go to the effort of figuring out what's, what's going on here. Yeah. I think the part that, that probably does need to be clear to everyone is that, um, uh, the, the, passing up a choice is going to delay it by a lot because I was sometimes picking a tech because it's like, well, this is going to be ready in two turns. So I'll just get the long one, you know, right. when this is done. And actually that's a really bad strategy with this system. I should like the long tech, if that's the most valuable thing, I should definitely go for it because um, if it's going to be discarded, uh, who knows how long it is before I get a chance to research it again. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and there's, there's some big downsides here also in the sense of like, you know, I've seen from streams just over and over again, like you, people get the, people get the, um, you know, you get your choices, right. And you have three or four choices. And the first thing a lot of people do is like, well, hit the tech tree button. Right. And the tech tree pops up and they're like, well, I want to click, you know, they, you can't just click on a tech to research it in the tech tree because it doesn't, that's not the right system. Right. Mm. Um, and because it might not be the one that's currently in your hand. And, you know, that's a pretty big loss, right? Like that, <laughs> that definitely is adding some complexity to the game that isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be there, right? Like that's kind of like the choice you always have to make. You know, is the is the complexity at you're adding to the game worth the the other positives that it brings, right? Um, and I'm hoping we can make that. I'm hoping we can kind of like fix that with better UI. But you know, it's definitely something I'm conscious of. Mm. I was curious. Did you ever try? Uh, so the order system is basically like there's a central pool of of, of moves, and then you're going to uh, distribute those out to units. But in practical terms, there's another kind of factor to it, which is that each unit has a fatigue limit. And once you hit that, it becomes very expensive to order them around. And right. so in the early game, at least, it, it's pretty logical when you have few units, to they're all going to do all of their moves and no one's going to do more than their fatigue limit. Right. Um, I was curious, did you ever try the pure order system where it's only a central resource and you can use it as much as you like? Yeah, that was the original system. Um, and there's a part of me that is always going to be like, that was the best version of this game. <laughs> like, um, at some point I might even like, I don't know. The, the thing is like, once fatigue became a thing, then it was like, oh great. Now I've got a new gameplay thing. Right. So like the Romans get like an extra fatigue and like, uh, there's like a general trait that gives you an extra fatigue. Right. And I think if you're like, 
you know, if you're blinded or suffer, so, well, if you're blind, you can't be a general, but if you're some other malady you get, like you get less fatigue, right? Uh, and uh, so you start turning all the other knobs. So it becomes kind of like, it gets like fully integrated. So you can't really pull it out anymore, right? Like, I think that's the, that's where we're at currently with fatigue. Um, but yeah, I actually really prefer that version of the game. Um, but it had some pretty big drawbacks. Um, we had a number of players who just had this very visceral reaction to the sense that like units could just come out of anywhere. So you could like grab one unit and spend 20 orders and move it all the way to the other end of the map. Right. <laughs> mm. um, I, I think from a pure like game mechanic point of view, that leads to the most, that's the most, has the most variability. It has the most, you know, tactical, you know, has the most tactical op op options, you know, it's like go, right. Like the, the space is just enormous. Right. Um, and so that's a plus, I guess, but it, I think where we were is we already had such variants that we didn't, that there were some, a hybrid system had some other advantages. Right. Um, and, uh, one is that, um, just simply like it does kind of help move you through your turn, the sense of like, I don't just accidentally just spend all my orders on this one guy. Right. Um, like we found that that was, that was definitely a problem where people would just, you know, they would just scout forever. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, there's other things like it makes training interesting because like, oh, that's the resource you use to unlock the, you know, the marching and, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, then just double. And we had, it, it, we had like a harsher system at one point, like we, at some point, the, the, some of our, 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 uh, our players maybe try a system where like there was no, like you hit, you hit the limit and like, that was it. And I thought I hated that system. Like in the sense that you can't march, you can't go past yeah. your fatigue limit because it's just so uh so punishing if you just end up like one move short right mm. uh of whatever it is you want to do and like i i very much wanted it to be like in the player's hands to do whatever they want to they don't have to sit down and do the math of like okay can all five of these units go to the places i i, I want them to get to this turn right um so you know the system is kind of like this this hybrid right um and you know the question is simply like okay so that's some extra complexity is it you know does it does it all balance out? And you know, I think it I think it probably does. You know, like I'm still a little sad. That kind of I I really did like the anything goes anything goes system, um, but you know, it works pretty well. It also it also I think works thematically, right? Just the idea that like you can only move a unit so far, you know, every year, right? You know, like I I, I you know I I very much try to like as much as possible, uh, you know, use the term year instead of turns everywhere I can in the UI. I feel like that really helps like make the game feel very very human and very like concrete. Right, um, mm. which makes these type of concepts more natural. Um, I also should ask: Have you guys been Have you guys been using the undo button? No, what? I didn't know that's an undo button. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Hmm. All right. Tom there's is two Mr. Undo as well. Like, yeah, I love undo. There's buttons. no love. <laughs> Almost everything I do is a mistake. <laughs> All right, so this is a danger. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing. Who knows? Maybe this could possibly ruin your experience, but we shall see. Um, <laughs> there is actually an option to like disable it because, of course, it is essentially like infinite infinite cheating if you if you want to. But um, since the combat system is deterministic, that means it, it's not that big of a deal, right? Um, and uh, uh, but yes, so actually, every time I go on a stream, there's like basically like two things I ask people right away, um, which is, have you discovered infinite tooltips, and have you discovered undo? Right. Um, 
and uh, it's kind of fun to to see their their reactions to that. Have you <laughs> discovered the infinite tool tips? Yes. I have, but only because you told me about it at a dinner <laughs> a few years ago. Because <laughs> I was, I was. Um, we were talking about uh, John Schaefer's At the Gates, and um, I can't remember which of us mentioned it first, but uh, yeah. he has this tool system where you can uh, not only can you mouse over a, a interesting word, a keyword in a certain description and get a tooltip for that, but if that tooltip also mentions a, a keyword, you can mouse over that as well, and then it, it's tooltips all the way down. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Um, yes, so your example is maybe not so typical, um, but uh, <laughs> you know we have to kind of like encourage people to like like we got a lot of complaints early on because you know people felt the like those I have a hard time not calling it the civilopedia, but the the health <laughs> thing is not as like friendly as they're used to, and that's because you know we're we're going to get to that. It's not not our top priority right now, but but I think the real thing is like like we're really leaning as hard into the infinite tooltips as much as we can. So like you see some proper noun you know, use the system like mouse over it, figure out, figure out what that, what that is. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, John came up with a cool system. I really, I really believe that it will be the standard for strategy games. I'm actually surprised more people haven't, you know, copied it at this point. Um, I really like it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool. But yeah, the undo button, um, you know, just kind of like, you know, it's something we tried out. I mean, obviously it's, it's has, you know, we've seen it more and more frequently, right? Like invisible ink had, had it, right. I seem to remember. Mm. Um, and uh, Into the Breach has it. Um, did Invisible Ink have undo? Yeah. Yeah. Walk okay, to a mission. Right. I'm not just, right. And they treated it very much as a resource. And um, eventually, um, and eventually, uh, you know, when we, when we put it in, there really was no reason to make it limited because we put it in so early into development. We're just like, okay, great. You know, throw it in. Fine. Um, and, uh, we just discovered like it just, you know, and, you know, obviously this is also only a single player thing. Um, I don't know what type of hell would be with multiplayer with undo, but you know, <laughs> that would be problematic. Um, but, uh, the, um, but yeah, we just kind of threw it in just to see what, what would happen. And we just found out that like, it really melds well with the order system because like, and you actually, I was going to actually bring this up earlier, I, I think, because I think Tom was, you were talking about how like it's, you know, when the game began, when your turn begins, it's kind of hard for you to figure out like, well, what can I accomplish this turn? Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you, um, you know, you do this complicated military maneuver and you discover you're, you know, you're a couple moves short. Well, if you want to, you can just undo back to the beginning of your turn and maybe do it a little differently or, you know, don't move that scout. You were going to move at the beginning of the turn. Right. Um, and it's kind of weird. I mean, <laughs> like this is not how you're supposed to play strategy games. I don't know. Somehow it just kind of works. I mean, it does require, I think, a little bit of, you know, um, I mean, it's an optional feature, right? Like, I, I don't know what to say. It's, it's just kind of, it's just this weird thing. And it seems to work well in our games. People like it. I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's we, fantastic. I'm excited to try this now. <laughs> that's how I want everything to work. I'm just like, I, you know, I play Slay the Spire a lot and um, yeah. that doesn't oh. have an undo button. Oh but man, I have thoughts about that. Yeah, you can. Uh, I'd like to hear them. Except, okay. uh, but um, so that doesn't have an undo button. But uh, you can just quit the game and go back into it, and sure. then you're back at the start of the same fight. And yep. I do that just constantly. Every run, I do that at least twice um, because yep. I will just play things in the wrong order. I'll just play it, and then I, yeah. it's not that the game tells me something that I didn't know. Yep. It's I play it, and then a second after I play it, I realize, oh god, I should have played this other thing first. Yep. Yeah. And that kind of failure is not fun for me, and I don't care about getting better at that. 
Because getting better at that means just really obsessing over every move and sitting there and agonizing about, oh, is this the right order though? Is there some other way? Or yep. should I consider this? Should I consider that? Should I consider that? That is the uh, uh, mental state that plagues me in my real life. <laughs> and I'm forever yep. overthinking real decisions. In games, I just want to be able to forget about it, just try stuff. And if it turns out to be the wrong thing for some reason that I should have known, that I should have remembered, I yep. just rewind and just remember it now. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think you basically described my thoughts as well. Um, but like, <laughs> while I was, you know, I, you know, while I was playing Old World and being used to this concept of like I can experiment however I want to, and I don't need to stress over the order of things. And at the same time, I was trying out Slay the Spire, you know, and, and like having this system where it's just it's just screaming for undo because it's it's deterministic, right? Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so like. And it's not even necessarily a very interesting decision. Usually it's like totally obvious which card you should play first. It's just that sometimes you don't figure that out until you kind of like actually go through the system, right? So yeah. there's like no reason not to allow the player to do that. And the game, you, the game, you, you want the game to be snappy. You want like every turn, you're like, okay, this card, this card, this card, this card, this card, right? Like it's not really a good experience if you play it kind of like, if you have to, if you need to like treat it like into the breach where you're like, okay, I need to like really sit down and like graph this all out. Um, you know, it's like, that's not how you want Slay the Spire to, to play out. So yeah, that if they're listening, yeah. like I would strongly recommend <laughs> that you guys give this a go. Like people will love it. So Slay the Spire does actually have some random stuff in it. Like you have, you have attacks that will hit three random enemies in random. That's true. Okay. Yeah. But so I, I remember... You, you uh, you can still get around it by having that be like a keyword on the card that says sure. something like irre irreversible. And as soon as it, if it says that on the card, it means after you play it, you can't undo anymore. Yeah. Um, I would argue that they'd be better off, like if it's like five or 10% of the design, they'd be better off throwing all those cards away to get the ability <laughs> to undo. Yeah, I agree personally. Yeah. Um, um, like sometimes you have to think in those terms, right? Like, oh, here's this amazing design idea. Oh, this sounds so much fun, but you know, it, it closes this other door to me that, and that's like, that's more important. Yeah. That's my, my whole world with tactical breach was, it's, it's uh, um, but looking at, it's very closely based on XCOM, but XCOM is pure chance or not pure chance, but it's full of chance. Everything is a chance. And every time I'm tempted to take any part of it, it's like, well, that undermines our entire <laughs> like rewindability and, um, yeah, all I can stuff. imagine. I could totally imagine that. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned something earlier about uh, combat, where in Old World, unlike Civ, uh, when you attack someone, you don't take damage. Is that right? Right. I mean, like, the melee units take, like, one point of damage, one out of, like, their 20 hit points. Basically, basically attrition, I'd say, is more accurate. But, yeah. I was just curious, right. what was the thinking behind that? Why did you make that decision? Um, so, initially, we actually... It's, it's kind of weird because we, we're shipping a single-player game where multiplayer will be coming later. Um, but initially, like the first year or so, we were only playing the game in multi, as multi multiplayer game. Um, and it was kind of like... It just worked really well in multiplayer um, because, uh, you know, like in traditional, I guess, Civ-style combat, you know, it's like you kind of get two, you know, two units jump into each other and you get a bunch of stuff happening and you, you know, one of them dies. Right. And that's a pretty, um, it's a pretty dramatic outcome. Right. And with the order system, you can get, um, combat isn't going to happen like slowly, like, whereas in Civ, like if someone is invading you, it's going to be this, like, this, like, uh, what's the right metaphor? I don't know. Just this very slow thing, like slow forest fire. That's just like getting a little bit closer and closer and closer. Right. Um, you know, in, 
in uh, old world, stuff can happen very quickly. And in general, like the multiplayer games are have much fewer turns. It's like a it's really fun as a multiplayer game, and kind of for that reason, like it's it's very dynamic. Um, but it meant that like you kind of needed essentially to split the combat across multiple turns, right? So uh, really, the way to think about it is, I you know I hit you on my turn, and then on your turn you hit me back, or you can retreat, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's the combat. Right. And so the idea was like, you shouldn't ever, you know, if two units are like equally, you know, have equal strength, it's basically takes four turns to like, for one of them to kill the other one. Now, mm-hmm. normally there'll be multiple units attacking. There's lots of different ways you can boost up your units. So like, maybe it means two turns, but it means you get this concept of like, okay, they move in, they strike, you know, now this unit's on cooldown and the other side gets a chance to strike back if they want to. Right. So it's a way of kind of like giving some agency to both sides um and um and i don't know there's a little bit that's just not even rational it just kind of it just kind of felt good from from how (laughs) how we experienced it yeah uh so we have some questions from listeners uh mostly focused on uh old world and new and actually uh we have a new question that just came in uh, during this podcast from your wife who asked Ask Soren about religion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so it's kind of weird because religion's been in there for the like the the very beginning. She's smiling right now. <laughs> on the spot. Uh, religion's been there very early. I just kind of like imported. I imported a lot of just systems straight from Civ Four early on when I was developing the game, and, and for the most part, all of them have been morphed into something completely different at this point. Um, but religion still kind of works kind of similar to the way it does in Civ Four. Um, there kind of kind of some stuff that's will be unique about it, like that. There's a theology system of like you kind of like upgrade your religions during t- down certain paths. But the thing that's kind of unique about it, and I'm having a hard time making this come across necessarily in the gameplay, is it's these are global upgrades. Like if you and someone else are both Jewish, like if they choose that the this is going to be a mythological religion, well that then affects you as well, right? So it's whoever decides to kind of like commit to certain theology affects it globally, right? Um, and, uh, but what she's trying to get at is I haven't fully fleshed out religion probably where it needs to be. And my hope is, is that it's something that should be a major focus of like the event system and the narrative. And like, you know, recently I had like commit, you know, families will, will adopt specific religions and barbarians mm-hmm. can also convert to various religions, um, or the tribes, excuse me, we have like generic barbarians, but then we have the, the name tribes on the map. Um, and so like, to me, I, I think it could be a very interesting tool for diplomacy, you know, especially like if you have two families in your, within your, your nation that kind of believe in different faiths, right? Like that's, you know, obviously there could be a lot of neat events that come from that. So it, it's kind of a secondary thing in the sense that like, it's a, it's just a, a nice dial that we can build other stuff around. Um, but, you know, I probably, I don't know if I've necessarily come up with, you know, some like amazing new concept, whereas, you know, you asked me about most other aspects of the game, I could be like, oh, I'm very excited about the, you know, the resources in the market or the the orders or the the tech deck or, or whatever, right? So. This this might mm-hmm. be like a really dumb question, but mm-hmm. what, what role do religions um, play in, in a game like this, a 4X game like this, obviously they're important to history. So right. thematically, that's that's an important aspect. But are they doing anything else? Uh, I mean, you do you mean like from a, like a pure metal yeah, pure game, game design, metal game design point of view? So yeah, 
my initial inspiration for like putting religions in Civ four was like, I wanted to kind of like borrow some of like the ideological uh, conflict you saw in Elf Centauri um, mm. in that you had some factions that were naturally opposed to each other. Um, and I thought that was, that was great. Uh, I don't know. I, I could think I could imagine even necessarily, I could imagine even just adopting that wholesale like in Civ four, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel like, the civs should be so stamped with like, well, this is the military civ and this is the diplomatic civ and this is the science civ or whatever. I don't want to be like completely overboard with it. So instead mm. I kind of felt like, and also like I wanted things to be a little more dynamic. So that's kind of where uh, religion came in basically. And that um, like, it was important so that different blocks would form. And so like, Oh, okay. Like the, the Christian civs might, you know, be it, you know, have good relations with each other where, and then they might, you know, they might all be upset with the Buddhist civs or, or whatever. And, you know, and that, and that'll be different based off the personalities of the leaders. But basically I wanted, I needed some sort of, you know, like thematic reason why two civs might dislike each other, because outside of that, what you're left with is just like, well, the civs that are close to each other don't like each other. And the ones that are far apart are okay with each other. Right. And like, Mm. that's okay. But like, you really need some extra vectors. Yeah. Hmm. We have a question from uh, Zed Fang who writes, mm-hmm. uh, what's Soren's favorite game that's nothing like a game he makes? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <laughs> hmm. What game do I play that's nothing like a game I make? Um, uh, our family has been playing Raft a lot recently. It's been a good game for uh, mm. I mean, we have three kids and like, uh, it's, uh, it's a good way to do something together that like is, you know, teamwork, sharing space, can't really, you know, go outside too much. Um, you know, we, uh, we also, you know, we love your, you know, something like Mario Kart is also something, you know, we love to play a lot. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I'm, uh, looking to play games with, yeah, you know, I always enjoy being able to play games with people. I, I wouldn't say I actually play a lot of single player games if I if I can find a good multiplayer game. Um and uh I mean as for something that's like completely different, um like uh you know, I can't I can't really list board games because you know most of my board games are like most of my games are kind of described very much as board gamey, you know. Um but uh yeah. <laughs> I always blank on these questions. I love Sands of Time, um, which is like completely unlike anything. Oh, yeah. I always think yeah, that, yeah. that game's just just brilliant. Um, there's just this feel to it and this like um what I like, what I really like about that, and maybe this is the, the element that appealed to me about that game, is I really like my game to be games to be open to the players. Right. I like them to be very friendly to the players. I think it's fitting like the having like an undo system like fits very much into that where, you know, I very much feel like, like, okay, I'm going to make this interesting game, but I want to give you all sorts of different ways to play it and ways into it. And uh, it's kind of open hearted. Right. Like it's not it's accepting it's actually it's accepting the context of the game the reality of the world, the, the world outside of the game that like, you know what, if you want to save scum, like it's right there. It's literally right in your computer, right? Like that's, that's there. <laughs> and you know, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to doubt you on that. And like, what was really cool about sense of time is they just, you know, they were like, okay, this is a difficult game. People are going to die a lot. They're going to have to reload a lot. Well, let's just skip the reload step and just make that part of like the actual game itself. 
right? Um, mm. So like have, putting the rewind system just right there, it just totally changed the feel of those type of games, which are games like I always kind of like, you know, I, I like, I'll enjoy like the first quarter of it. And then at some point it just gets so difficult that it's just like, I don't, I don't like keep having to go back to checkpoints and whatnot. It's just, you know, like that's not when I'm playing the game. I'm not, I don't want to beat, you know, you know, like you, you know, there's three challenges in a row, which now I'm, I have totally mastered and it's just boring to me to get to the hard challenge, which I'm going to fail. And they're going to have to, you know, repeat through that. Like it's, it's just, yeah. it's wonderful to play a game where they're like, okay, this is the actual way someone plays the game. How can we make that as good as possible? And that's, I hope I can be a designer that approaches games like that. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Rob writes, dearest crates, crowbars and industrialists of Mars. So glad that the pod on Soren can make this happen. I keenly anticipate your combined wisdom and puns. What's the worst AI coding decision you've ever made? <laughs> Warmest, uh, best, turn one, freshest regards, Rob. Yeah, uh, worst worst AI decision I ever made. Um, so probably probably that was goes back to Civ three, um, and uh, just I think I, when I was writing the Civ three AI, I didn't really understand that you can't that an AI in a especially in a forex game, it's not meant to replace a human. It's really, and you, hopefully you can see this some in Old World, where I'm really embracing like asymmetry. Like when you start the game, like depending on what difficult level you play on, like there's already these established empires, and you're like the new kid on the block, basically. Um, and that you know the AI is not playing the same game as you are. They're more like NPCs, really. They're NPCs that might be able to wipe you out, but they're still kind of like NPCs. Um, and so with Civ Three, I still was like, I assumed it was like, okay, basically the AI in Civ 3 is supposed to be like, imagine it's multiplayer, except the AI is, you know, filling the role of the other humans, right? Um, and so if something was available to the human, then the AI should take advantage of it too. So, you know, like one thing that, one thing that a human does a lot in a Civ game is contact everyone as much as they can to try to t- trade technologies quickly, as much as they can to like, you know, Base, you know, move through the tech tree as fast as possible without actually actually having to research stuff, right? So if you if you are the first person to discover, you know, uh, the alphabet, then you should definitely contact all of your neighbors and see if you can trade the alphabet for ironworking from Persia and the alphabet for theology from Greece and the alphabet for something else from Rome, right? Like, I mean, you you, you know, it's you know, it's just a very strong move and which begs, you know, which leads to another question of like, probably we shouldn't have that type of tech trading in a Civ game, but you know, it was still like, it was the assumption that that was okay at the time. And because of that, I was like, well, I'll just make sure the AI does the same thing because it's the right move. Right. Um, and from the human's point of view, what, what happened then is if you have the AI aggressively contacting each other all the time and being very, uh, so we say loose with, with their trading parameters, because the other issue with, tech trading is that you're not really giving something up, right? You aren't yeah. giving away your tech. You're just sharing it, right? So you lose nothing and you get something. That's why it's so, so lopsided. Um, and so from the human's perspective, what they, all they saw is all of the AIs tended to be at the exact same tech level, right? So <laughs> it basically felt like you're playing against this cartel of AIs um, that were <laughs> like, you know, basically calling each other up all the time, swapping all their secrets. And, you know, you either had to, pl- you know, get into the game or you'd be, you'd be left out and, um, people hated it. Like it was just a, it was just a very bad experience. <laughs> and, um, you know, because it's about, you know, ultimately it's about the player's experience, right? Like, it's not about like, am I making, am I designing the AI to perform as best as possible at the game? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. The same, I, I mean, curious. same thing happened. 
you know, you can see the same thing in Offworld, right? Where like, you know, the AI could react to something super quickly to like grab a claim from the market, right? Or, uh, you know, you know, grab this geotherm here or like, you know, like it, it you know, you, you, we would put in timers where like, you know, like they found their, their headquarters and they shouldn't just like grab four spots on the map like immediately, right? Like there, you know, you have to, yeah, I mean, whatever, right? Like <laughs> you have to think about the player experience. Yeah. Um, Simon Thompson asks, do you prefer the pressure of real-time games with quick failure conditions like Offworld Trading Company or slower, more considered, but potentially more drawn-out failure conditions like Civ 4? Huh. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I think if you're going to fail, the faster you fail, the better, right? Um, and I mean, that is one thing I think was kind of a strength of Offworld is that... Uh, in the like the standard game like when you lose like you you lose like that right like it's just over and like i thought to me that was like an improvement over you know it's an i always thought of it as an rts right like so to me like most rts games have this like last five minute problem where it's like it's just it's just a bad painful experience right um because you know the game is going to be over the game may be the game is essentially over it's just you know you have to do whatever you have to kill the rest of the units or you know get the the, the command points or whatever to to get victory um the game doesn't really build to like this crescendo right um and uh, so in off world like if someone you know if someone beats you like it's just over and we've seen games of off world that have come down to the wire where both players are like 95 percent 96 nice like that close to being able to buy the other one out and one gets one of them gets there like just a couple seconds before the other one too sometimes you'll see where people are playing on streams and they both get to 100 percent at the same time and then it's like literally like who can <laughs> who can press the button first right um which is absolutely not an experience you see in any other rts game right and so like i i definitely like that and i don't I, you know i think that um there's a lot of problems in forex games that you can't really solve you can only mitigate Right. And I think that like, I don't, I don't necessarily think there's like a great, you know, instant fail. The other thing is like the longer a game is, the more careful you have to be about losses. Right. Mm. Um, Lots of, lots of things are much more acceptable if a game is less than 30 minutes than if it's, you're talking about a 10 hour experience. So like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a question here. I you've sort of touched on some of the uh, your solutions to this, but uh, I know it's a topic that's uh, close to your heart because I remember a podcast between you and um, John Schaefer about this, which was mm-hmm. uh, super uh, fascinating. Uh, Kevin writes, Dear CNC, uh, my question concerns the mid-game crawl. Uh, generally, 4X games have excellent openings. The world is there to be explored with new surprises lurk around every corner. But more recently, uh, many Forex games have succeeded in creating interesting end games, which were always the worst, through events. See Total Warhammer, Three Kingdoms, or Stellaris. I have no idea about Old World's end game. Uh, I have faith, but I'm more interested in how Soren and his team have dealt with the dreaded mid-game slog. Uh, see Stellaris, most of all, though Warhammer has this to a lesser degree. You've explored everything and had your first war, but now what? Rinse and repeat until an end game event triggers something interesting, or even worse, there is no end game and you just snowball till you see game over. Thanks for the fantastic pods, Kevin. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is something that this is why we're in early access. Like, I'm still thinking through <laughs> these, these these issues right now. Um, like, uh, you know, I think we have a lot of mechanics I'm happy with, right? And I think like we're we have reasonably good pacing right now because the game is not the game is not too long. Um, you know, we're not, uh, 
we're, you know, we're not stuck with, you know, as I talked about earlier, you know, we have to hit all of these eras so we can kind of decide how long we want the game to be. You know, we have lots of different dials, you know, we can move the victory points down, we can move them up, you know, we can change how, our, how hard the ambitions are. Um, but like, is the game still fun during, you know, in turns, you know, like 60 to 80, I mean, or 60, like 60 to 120 roughly. Like, um, I mean, I will say one thing is that um, I think that, having the tribes on the map helps us out some like because the game the game shifts kind of like a third of the way in where early on your conflict is going to be with the uh the tribes that surround you because you're going to have to basically fight them there's a there's a couple ways to settle peacefully um but generally speaking like you're going to have to fight your way to to capture the city sites um and that's a different style of combat that's more like fighting zombies basically like they don't they're they don't really have ai per se right they just kind of like come at you they have different behaviors but um you know the uh and then at some point you're gonna have to get into conflict with like a real civilization and so then that that feels significantly different right um so i i hope that fixes you know it improves the 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 pacing some you know i think having the ambitions theoretically helps in that you're you have different things to aim for right and it gives you a reason to try something that you want like we've heard reports of someone like you're in a you're in a war with a, a sieve and you might want to have it you know end peacefully but then you get there's an event that comes up where one of your families is like incensed at the the romans and they like they're like they demand vengeance and so if you want to you can opt into this ambition where you need to capture three roman cities right and so now it's like you have this moment now where you're like okay normally i would go this way now the game is giving me this option to go this other way if i want to right um and my hope is I just want to keep creating more moments like that. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Um, I think that's all the old world questions that we have time for. So uh, I know you have a, uh, a deadline, Soren. So um, sure. we'll let you go. Thank you so much for coming on. This is yeah, super thanks interesting. Thanks so much, Soren. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun. Um, I, uh, I definitely appreciate it. I've been, I, I enjoy you guys' podcast. You guys have been out for a long time, and uh, it's great to be on. Awesome. Thank Thanks. you. Hello, Marsh here. I'm editing the podcast. This is the point at which Alex and Tom turned off the recording, but the conversation continued and was captured on Soren's end. It ended up being too entertaining not to use thanks to the contributions of Leia Johnson, who is Mohawk Games' president and a writer and designer on Old World. Alex and Tom's sound quality takes a nosedive, but who wants to hear them anyway? And so, over to Soren and Layla. All right. How's, things, cool. how's the launch been for you, um, Soren? Are you kind of um, juggling the um, isolation stuff? Yeah, we're finished up there. Working, we're saving it. Been okay. uh, yeah, it's been great. I mean, we've got a lot of people playing it, and uh, it's, it's selling well on the Epic Store, which we were curious about how that would work out. And yeah, we see that we've got like, concurrent users. There's like 1,000 people playing it. You know, and uh, seen a lot of streams, and you know, we'll see how it how it pans out over the summer. But you know, I definitely it's great to it's great to see genuine feedback. Great to see people playing the game who have no idea we're watching, right? Like that's <laughs> that's super <laughs> super valuable. I mean, I don't know. It's so much harder to design the game if like if we decided not to go down that path. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah. Do you? I assume you're having like a. I have friends in that situation, and 
they've sort of treated their epic launch as like almost a soft launch. They don't really yell about it as much as they otherwise would because they kind of want their big spike to be up when it's on Steam. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. By the way, Layla's here if you want to say hi, Layla. Uh, I, I can hear you. Hey, I can hear you now. Yeah. You remember you remember Tom, right? From yeah. uh, GDC? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Thanks for your question. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the audible. Um but yeah, like we're kind of we're kind of looking at it as a, you know, it's, it's a nice place to be on early access. You know, like we're not stuck with like Steam reviews and basic general Steam drama. Like it's, you know, I don't know if Epic did this yeah. on purpose, but it sure works well for us, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a safe launch in a way. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but a thousand concurrence is, is good. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we'll see if it continues like that, but I mean, that's... I mean, we never got that for Offworld, you know. Um, you know, at least not, not until we went free. I mean, in our like our Discord server, which we started, uh, what two weeks ago? When did you start it? Started it two weeks ago. Yeah. It's already got. It's already like fifty percent bigger than our Offworld server, which has been going for you know five years. So. <laughs> so, yeah, the signs are signs are looking good. So yeah, we're pretty happy. If you ever want to ask Sorn difficult questions, just send me an email first. No one's weaknesses. Yeah, we, we argue a lot in the kitchen about design ideas. Yep. <laughs> the kids hear all about it. Yeah, I heard Soren talk about like the, the the weirdest or the I think it was the most difficult AI decisions he makes and I was gonna mention yesterday night this morning I woke up, came 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 down and saw Soren with this with a face. Like Soren has a face when he's frustrated. <laughs> uh, he's just like generally peaceful. It almost like happens once or twice a year. So just so you could understand that it's it has a thing. It's a face. And I saw it and I was like, what's going on? It's like I'm having a day. And it was 830. <laughs> 8.30 in the morning. It's a bad start. And I'm like, okay, I generally just go for the coffee machine. And I was like, okay, tell me what's going on. And I said, like, there's this bug. And and the thing is, it was because of something I triggered. Mm. So I was like, I wanted to start apologizing for creating this mess. But I, I generally support my ideas and I stand by them until they prove that, you know, by the testers that it's a bad idea. And we're both very stubborn. So he goes, no, it's just more like I'm trying. I am pushing for. She wanted polygamy. I want polygamy. <laughs> For, for a very, very historical reason. Like, I write the events and I, I I am writing now a series of events for each civilization. And I'm writing about Queen Olympias. And Queen Olympias actually was very furious with Philip for marrying a Macedonian and creating an heir who is pure, pure Macedonian. She wasn't Macedonian. and But her main anger with him was because he married other women. So I want to be able to translate that into mechanics. And if I cannot make Philip polygamous, I won't be able to create that series of, I think, <laughs> great experience for players. And I can't do it with Nebuchadnezzar. I cannot do it with anyone else, you know, who actually married more than one woman. 
And the drama. I mean, for people who like drama, can you imagine? Yes. So I made him start working on the AI that creates that for me. And that gave him the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I... Yeah, I had kind of did the first... I did the first pass last night Night where like, okay, because, you know, if you assume there's only one spouse, I'm sure, Tom, you can imagine like all the assumptions built into your code that like assume one spouse. So I had to yeah. like pull all of that out. And, um, and I was like, in the morning, I was like, well, let's give it a try. And then, you know, I just passed turn after turn after turn and no one was asking to... There, I got no marriage proposals, and I'm like, well, I guess I totally messed it up. And, and then the, you fixed it. The problem you realize you just, you just write your code, so you know you, compl you complicate the code a little bit. Well, it was actually it was actually someone else's change, which is actually the harder part. Oh, yeah, someone else Alex. someone else added this bug that just broke every event, and so and we forgive him because he almost never makes a mistake. Yeah, so I was looking in the wrong place, which is like that's a very hard thing to do when you're when you're trying to fix a bug. So. <laughs> It's fun. I asked about a religion for, uh, you know, for these reasons. Soren and I go on and on talking about stuff at home. And he wanted to create a type of religion earlier that's kind of closer to what he's used to. And I think that we started generating, um, because of Cyrus the Great, I told him, look, Cyrus was able to rule a nation with him being open to having multiple religion under his rule. Just, just go with the simplest way to create mechanics that match history. And, you know, that led slowly to us creating whatever we're creating now. But we are still not solidifying where we are in religion. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, slowly got, working towards it. 12 months to go, so... I am working <laughs> we'll my see. way to castration and incest, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> For, for, yeah. A whole different podcast. A whole different podcast. Yeah. For the record, I'm I'm pro castration and anti anti incest, but we'll see where we end up. Oh man, we should have you both on the podcast. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Well, you can uh, you can you can have us back in a year, and you'll see where we ended up on all those juicy questions. <laughs> There are some things uh, that you can you can. There are some things you can say when you know no one's recording, and that's just that's just fun. It's just yeah. a conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why we secretly record this part. <laughs> well, if you recorded it and it's there, and you want to add it, it's okay. No, <laughs> <laughs> sadly we don't. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I am recording it. Actually, although you guys are probably. Oh yeah, like... you are. Oh my god. <laughs> He does this all the time. He records it on his end because with I'm designer paranoid. notes, when he does the podcast for designer notes, uh, I think at some point he had like a bad experience with audio. So now he just makes sure that he is having a backup. Yep. Yeah. I think literally all of us have been a journalist and had this problem, right? Yep. <laughs> I'm also a journalist, by the way. That's what I studied. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I remember. Oh. oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. I thought like you, all of you there are journalists. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a pretty well-worn path now from journalism to developer, actually. So. I, I'm, loving, <laughs> I'm, loving, I'm loving this world. I mean, yeah, I did journalism. I had a radio show and then I worked for the State Department. And now I am working in the game industry and it's not going to go back. That's it. I'm here to stay. <laughs> Ah, Soren Johnson, what a lovely guy. Yeah.
so yeah you can check out um old world on uh, the uh epic game store um and it's at the very start of a year of development um and cons and updates which is exciting so have a look at that um so um it's the end of the show uh you can hang out with us and our community on our discord channel um our lovely community um you can find the address for um, signing up to that on our website, which is creightoncrowbar.com. If you have a question for a future episode, you can send it to us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You, you can tweet your questions to us at creightoncrowbar. That's an and, not an ampersand. You can listen to the pod if you don't already or are not at this very moment on YouTube. Um, that's all the things about the questions and the places. Uh, the Crane Crowbar is kindly funded by our um, Patreon backers. Thank you so much to all of you. You make this all possible. If you would like to know more about supporting our podcast and its spin-offs, visit patreon.com slash Crowbar. I have been Alex Wiltshire. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rotational, which I'm not going to bother to spell tonight. And Tom. Uh... I am on Twitter at Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Everybody. (laughs) Everybody. A confident, bold exit there.